I want to begin today with a little bit of a lengthy quotation, a little longer than I'm used to doing, uh, but I think uh, it's good for us to hear this. It's from a book that's, uh, I hate to say this because it came out after I finished my graduate work, and yet people are referring to it as a classic. That really makes me feel old, you know. Uh, came out originally in 1986 called The Cross of Christ by John R.W. Stout, or Stout, I mean. Here's what he says. It is impossible to read the New Testament without being impressed by the atmosphere of joyful confidence which pervades it and which stands out in relief against the rather jejune religion. I had to look that word up. It simply means naive or simplistic, superficial, something that was dry, uninteresting. It stands out in relief against the rather jejune religion that often passes for Christianity today. There was no defeatism about the early Christians They spoke rather of victory. For example, thanks be to God, He gives us the victory. Again, in all these things, that is, adversities and dangers, we are more than conquerors. Once more, God always leads us in triumphal procession. And each of Christ's letters to the seven churches of Asia ends with a special promise to Him who overcomes. Victory, conquest, triumph, overcoming. This was the vocabulary of the first followers of the risen Lord. For if they spoke of victory, they knew they owed it to the victorious Jesus. They said so in the text which I have so far quoted only in truncated form. What Paul actually wrote was, He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. And God leads us in triumphal procession in Christ. It is He who overcame, has triumphed, and moreover did it by the cross. Why? do you think that was the case? Why do you think there was no defeatism in those early Christians, even though they were undergoing persecution? Because you know what? That's not the state of the church today. If I were to give a state of the church address, it would not be one of victorious uh, claiming victory and overcoming. In fact, in a 2019 article in uh, a Preaching Today magazine, uh, W.E. Sangster wrote an article called The Defeat of Defeatism. And here's what he writes. And his words are true. I hate to admit it. Some ministers are in the same sloth of despond, sharing their problems. Recently, some young men raised the question as to whether the church as an institution was under the sentence of death and if, with their life before them, they ought to remain in the ministry. 
they appeared to think that any efforts to resuscitate it, that is the church, was painting the ship while she goes down. So what's the answer? You know, I think it should be obvious to you that I believe the answer is to be found by finding hope in the midst of this shaken world. I mean, that's where we spent our focus uh, for these sermons for now over three months. And I found one thing reassuring as I continued in Sangster's article. He goes on to say, quote, nothing would so defeat the defeatism of the present times as the recovery of Christian assurance. God is longing to meet repentance and surrender with absolution and the seal of sonship and to guard His children's peace in a distraught world. Now, I didn't choose 1 John randomly. Uh, There was a conversation that went back and forth uh, between Kay and I and Cindy and I and we were talking and I would suggest different things and one book was suggested and the more I thought and the more I prayed about it, I decided, and, and this isn't something that just jumps on you, because I've been studying John's writings in somewhat of a focused manner since my postgraduate studies back in the late 70s. I actually did a doctoral seminar with Dr. Wayne Ward on just the writings of John, uh, known as the Johannine literature, uh, his gospel, his letters, the book of Revelation. I like John. I like John because he lays it right on top of the table. That's the kind of person I aspire to be. I don't want to cause enemies, but at the same time, I'm not one to, to not let you know how I feel about something and what I believe to be the truth. And John does that. In the five chapters of 1 John, he uses the word liar five times. And we've already looked at four of the five. Chapter 1, verse 10. If we say we've not sinned, we make Him a liar. And the Word's not in us. Chapter 2, verse 4. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in Him. Chapter 2, verse 22. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? And most recently, chapter 4, verse 20. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. But John also lets us know exactly why he is writing. He's not writing from a hidden agenda. In fact, John tells us that his gospel had an evangelistic purpose. He wrote that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That's why I wrote John 20. Verse 30 and 31. And this first letter of John that we've been going through, going through it verse by verse for some time now, has more than one purpose statement. At the very beginning, we saw chapter 1, verse 4. We're writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Chapter 2, my little children, I'm writing these things so that you won't sin. John wants us to know specifically 
that He is writing so that there will be an increasing of assurance for certainty. I write these things to members of the church who already believe. I write these things that you may know that you have eternal life. And the way He provides for us. It's a way of self-examination. He gives us three tests. He believes that our faith will truly be strong when these three strands are working together. And we'll see these strands woven through our text this morning. True or genuine belief or faith in verses 1, 4, and 5. True or genuine love in verses 2 and 3, 1, 2, and 3. And true or genuine obedience in verses 2 and 3. And so we're, we're, really, we're really addressing today the matter of faith. Best understood, not in terms of a blind leap, but in terms of loyalty and allegiance. And when we can pass those three tests, we'll have that assurance that we need to deal with the defeatism that is shredding, that's tearing the fabric of the church and the fabric of our society and the fabric of our homes apart. In fact, I believe that as we move through our text today, 1 John 5, 1-5, I think we'll see exactly what John Stott saw when he described these verses as a closely woven, single, coherent fabric of the three threads. My message is simply entitled, This is a Victory, and our text is 1 John 1, 5, 1-5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? May God add His blessing to our reading of His Word today. Today, we join together to celebrate the most important single event in the history of the world. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the one thing that John wants to make sure is that we understand that there is a distinctive, an irreducible content that serves as a foundation for our beliefs. So what is the essence of our faith? Note first of all how John begins with the historical reality. Being a Christian begins with the belief that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the one anointed as the King of the Kingdom, the Savior of the world, 
And He's not only a fully human man who walked on this planet, but John says right at the beginning and the end of these verses that He also has been born of God. He is the Son of God. Now I know that it's been 14 weeks. But do you remember how 1 John began? Let me refresh your memory. 1 John chapter 1, verses 1-3. to That which was from the beginning, which we heard, which we have seen with our eyes, we looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the Word of life. The life was made manifest or revealed, and we've seen it. And we testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. What is John emphasizing as he begins this letter? That he and the other apostles were in fact eyewitnesses. They are able to affirm the historical accuracy of what's written in the Bible. John is emphasizing that he saw, he heard, he touched. I mean, he was the disciple Jesus loved according to the book of John. He was the one who was leaning on Jesus' breast at the last table. He's the one Peter turned to and said, hey, ask Jesus who it is that's going to destroy, I mean, that's going to betray Him. That closeness. And since today is Resurrection Sunday, or Easter as some people refer to it, Go with me mentally at least to John chapter 21. Jesus has just appeared. He's just appeared as a resurrection appearance. Crucifixion already happened. Burial already happened. Sunday has already come. In fact, Peter gets a little anxious and he says, guys, I'm going back to work. That's what he meant when he said, I'm going fishing. He, he wasn't saying, I'm going to go relax and hang a pole, a line and a pole in the water. He was saying, I'm going back to work. And Jesus appears there by the Sea of Tiberias or Galilee as they were fishing. He tells them, have you caught anything? No, I fished all night. Professional fishermen who knew that lake Fished all night and haven't caught anything. Jesus says, uh, put your net on the other side. What's Jesus doing? He's taking them back. He's taking them back to another time when He was on the shore and said, hey, have you caught anything? And they said, no. And He said, put your net on the other side. And they did. And it said they caught so many fish their nets were torn. Remember that? He's taking them back. And they catch so many fish that it's pulling the boat down. 
And John says to Peter, It's the Lord. Peter grabs himself quickly and jumps out of the boat and gets to the shore. And John tells us, don't ask me why they did it, but they sat down and they counted. There was 153 large fish. And he notes, and the nets didn't even tear this time. And there was Jesus with a charcoal fire. Do you know in the Gospel of John that word is only used two times? There and at the trial scene when Peter is warming himself by a charcoal fire. The only time, two times that word is used. And there by that charcoal fire, Jesus says to Peter, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Third time, Peter, do you even care for me as a friend? He changes the Greek word from agape to phileo. Reinstates Peter. And as they are walking away, he tells Peter, yeah, you're going to be faithful. In fact, you're going to be carried somewhere that you don't even want to go. Peter was crucified. But he was crucified upside down because he didn't want to be crucified in the same way as Jesus had been crucified. But as they're walking away after hearing that, he says, well, what about John? And you know what? Jesus doesn't even really answer his question. He just says, follow me. But there's an interesting thing that John says there in chapter 21, verse 24. He says, This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that the testimony is true. Historical certainty. Historical, verifiable reality. In other words, the faith that we have has a historical reality as a foundation. Now listen carefully to me. The philosophy of science says that science is about studying that which is repeatable. The scientific method is about recording precisely what you do so that somebody can come by later and take your notes and do exactly the same thing and should have exactly the same result. That is the nature of science. And that is why there is no scientific proof for the resurrection. It happened once. And it will not be repeated until the return of the Lord. But that being said, there is more historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ than there is for the life of Plato or Socrates. And you don't hear very many people at all saying, well, I don't believe Plato lived. I don't believe Socrates lived. To believe in anyone or anything other than the truth that the apostles proclaimed 
is to believe in something that fails, that lacks the power to grant us victory which John proclaims. This is where we gain the power. This is where we gain the power to overcome the world. But secondly, John also wants to confirm that the essence of our faith includes the experiential certainty. John begins, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Now, my intent is not to be a grammar teacher. Although I did that my very first year of teaching college, I got stuck with teaching freshman English. But John begins by using a couple of verbs that are, the tenses are very important. What John is saying is that present tense believe. Believing in the here and now. What they and what we experience each and every day is the evidence of the perfect tense new birth when we became children of God. And what I mean by that, perfect tense new birth, is he uses a perfect tense of the Greek language that means that our belief, our conversion, our baptism, something that took place at a point in time, should have an ongoing impact. As John said it did, for and to each of them. And that brings us secondly to the effects of our faith. Our conversion, when we were born again, it's not just an intellectual, propositional, mental event. How many times have we pointed out just in 1 John where John said, you think you're a believer? Well, let me ask you something. Are you keeping my commandments from the Lord? You think you're a believer? Are you loving your neighbor? You see, it's not just a propositional thing. It's not just saying, oh, I believe that Jesus is Christ, Son of God. The demons do that. James tells us that. Jesus acknowledged that the greatest commandment was to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And one of the effects of our faith should be that kind of love. Because He also affirmed that second to the first, and just like it, was the loving of our neighbors, which John has been stressing throughout this letter. And that love includes not just our neighbor that we like. Jesus told the story to tell who the neighbor was by talking about one of those Samaritans that the Jews hated. Hated so much that when they were asked who was the neighbor in the story that I just told, they couldn't even say the word Samaritan. They said, oh, I guess the guy that gave him help. But love for God 
is not so much a matter of emotional intensity as it is moral integrity. Our love for God is demonstrated by means of our obedience. Let me give you two big words. I used to do this when I taught fourth and fifth grade. Other people would sit in and they'd say, why are you using such big words? I'd say, because I define them. Then we use the other regular small words. But sometime later in life, they're going to hear the big word and they're going to say, oh, you know what? My teacher back in the fourth grade taught us that word. Let me give you two big words. One of them you hear all the time. Orthodoxy. Is that an orthodox church? Are they right with their beliefs? But orthodoxy is not stressed as much in the Bible as orthoproxy, which has to do with right behavior. Judgment passage. Jesus divides the sheep and goats. On what basis? Whether they're feeding, giving a drink, giving a place to abide, visiting those who are imprisoned, orthoproxy. And in John 4, John wrote that the heartbeat of God's love for us is sacrifice. Listen to the words of John chapter 4, verses 8 to 10. Anyone who does not love does not know God. 1 John 4, 10 that is. Because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. If this is love, or in this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Jesus' death on the cross, His love made known in His sacrifice should cause us to want to be obedient, loyal children. Which brings us to the final effect, and that is victory. The victory of faith. But again, make sure you hear what I'm about to say. It's not that we are victorious people. On my own, I fail more than I succeed. You have been a part of this process with me since August. And I have probably said more times than I should have about how much weight I've lost. But you know what? There were some days that I just really didn't want to go walk. There were some cold days, some snowy days, where we came down here and we walked around inside the building, out that door, through the fellowship hall, around sometimes down into the basement and up those stairs. and Round and round we went for an hour walking around this building inside. But you can't walk as far in an hour inside doing that stuff as you can outside. And I have this little program on my phone called Map My Walk. And right now, I'm a part of a challenge for the year 2021. There's over 200,000 people in that challenge. And that week that my wife and I walked around and around inside this building, I slipped from in the top 4% to 5%. And I said to my wife, she's right here as my witness, 
I got to get back outside. I slipped to 5%. (laughs) How silly, really, when you think about it. But here's the point I'm making. On my own, if that program hadn't said, you're slipping, you're getting behind those other people, I wouldn't have had the motivation to be victorious. Because you and I are not victorious on our own. But here's the great thing. We are plugged in as a Christian to a victorious power. Because of the cross, because of the sacrificial, self-giving love of our Lord and Savior, when we acknowledge Him, when we accept the loving offer that He's given to us, then we begin this process of transformation. And in fact, John gathers up in the phrase, the world, in verse 4, the sum of the limited and transitory powers that come against us, that are opposed to God which make obedience difficult. That's why John emphasizes that we have set before us the task of overcoming the world. And what is it that gives us that victory? John writes, and this is the victory that's overcome the world, our faith. Believing. Being loyal giving our allegiance to Jesus as the Son of God. And so on this Resurrection Sunday, where does this lead us? In many ways, it's a mystery. You like mysteries? Unfortunately, the mystery, the term mystery in the Bible, refers to something other than what we think of. It refers to something that at one time was hidden, but has now been revealed, made known. So I just want to take you in conclusion to the writing of Paul. He says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body will put on the imperishable, and this mortal body put on immortality. And when the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Remember when Jesus appeared to the disciples? And it said, He appeared before them, but the doors were locked. But then He said to Thomas, who happened to be there on that second visit, Thomas, here, 
Put your finger in my hand, my side. The word Paul uses is a word for body. We're not going to be ghosts. We're not just going to be ephemeral spirits. We're going to have a body of some kind. That's what resurrection means. Being changed into a ghost or a spirit is not biblical. That's Greek philosophy. But we're going to have a different kind of body. We're going to have a body that can be in Jerusalem one day and at the Sea of Tiberias the next day. Which is not a one day travel by foot. We're going to have a body that can go through locked doors. But it's going to be a body. It's a mystery. Do I understand that? No. But I can see the evidence of it in what the Scriptures tell us about Jesus Christ. And then Paul goes on. The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is in the law. But here's that verse. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Have you been through some tough times? Have you been through some times where you didn't think you were going to be able to see the end of the tunnel, far less any light at the end of the tunnel? What kept you going? Austin asked me the other day, Dad, you really thinking about going back to truck driving? I said, no, that's a cop-out, sir. That's when I really get frustrated. And I know that your brother has a truck down there that he's ready to put me in. And I could just climb in that truck and I could just be out there on my own listening to my Christian music and just relaxing. But it's a cop-out. It's a way of escape. Not a way of overcoming. But I can be victorious because of Jesus Christ. If I might once again borrow from W.E. Sangster, nothing would so defeat the defeatism of the present times as the recovery of Christian assurance regarding the victory that you and I as Christians have. Because of the empty tomb. The defeat of death, which we celebrate each year on Resurrection Sunday. Let's pray.